This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to... We're watching here. We're watching here. This is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me, he is the first monkey to my twelfth monkey, Perry Seibert. <laughs> I'm the seventh monkey of a seventh monkey. There we Little go. blues man. I, I was reaching on that one because I wasn't sure if the character names were iconic enough for anyone to know what the hell I was talking about. But, See, uh, I was hoping I would be the Chris Marker to your Alfred Hitchcock. That's how, that's uh, how I was hoping we were going to go with this, but you know. Yeah, I, did, I, I went with monkeys instead because you always, if you have a choice, you go with monkeys. Uh, always. <laughs> how are you doing, Perry? I'm good. I'm good. All is well in my universe. How are you and yours, Chris? I am good. By the time uh, this posts, I will have come back from an ill-advised trip to an amusement park. Um, <laughs> that was uh, – we, we do a yearly trip to Kings Island, and I tried to argue myself out of it this year um, because of the hellscape that is the world. But uh, I was voted down by Children's Tears, and uh, <laughs> and so uh, we did some research, made sure like that that they are enforcing masks. There's social distancing. The parks are apparently empty right now, so we're crossing our fingers, holding our breath, and just really hoping. It's one of those things where it's like this is the dumbest thing in the world. But uh, not the water park, right? Just please uh, tell water me park's, not a water park. Water park's completely closed. Oh, thank God. Okay. So, so we'll, we'll be wearing masks on roller coasters, which I'm sure you've seen the meme going around in Japan that uh, there's an amusement park that's telling people they can't scream on roller coasters. So <laughs> they're supposed to scream in their hearts. And the, the meme is like, this is the, uh, this is the theme of the 20th, of 2020. Uh-huh. All right. So, Have fun. I can't, I can't wait to hear about it. You know, it, it I yes. do mean that. I am eager to hear about it. <laughs> My hope is there will not be much to say, but we shall see. Uh, today, we are going to continue some talk about viruses by talking about the fourth movie in our 5 from 95 series. We're going to talk about Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys. But first, Perry, what have you seen? What have I seen? I had the pleasure just recently of sitting down with uh, with Emma my oldest and she uh she is since uh since she was a teenager she has always had a taste for um classic uh 30s and 40s screwball comedies uh she she fell in love with bringing up baby at like mm-hmm. 14 13 14 uh and that was the key for that unlocked all of those she loves Cary Grant uh and we finally got around to watching the Philadelphia story oh okay which she had never seen and uh I had the I had I have the criterion of and had never actually hadn't taken out of the shrink wrapping <laughs> since I'd had it. I just hadn't gotten around to watching it yet. The disc and uh, just had a fabulous afternoon uh, watching uh, Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart and Catherine Hepburn. And you realize that it's just, you close your eyes and it's like listening to this amazing jazz trio. Mm-hmm. Those three voices are so different and so distinct, and they complement each other so beautifully throughout the course of that entire movie. Uh, yeah, it was it was a really great day. Oh, that's great. Was it a hit? 
Oh yeah. Good. Oh yeah. I knew I knew it would be. That's that is right up her alley. There's nothing there is few things Emma likes better than witty, and there are few people she would rather uh hear be witty than Cary Grant. Great. Um, I I could talk about how I have already watched Hamilton twice on Disney Plus, but I'm sure by now everyone has already watched Hamilton. I'm probably going to watch it again this weekend if I'm completely honest. Um, but I'm actually going to talk about something a lot of people probably haven't tuned into. Uh, you can watch it now on Amazon Prime. It's a very small sci-fi film called The Vast of Night. Have you seen this or heard of this? No, I've heard. I've heard good things. Okay. This is a very, very small movie. Um, and it concerns a town in the 1950s where this young boy who works at a radio station and this girl who works as kind of a telephone operator, they're, they're working alone in the middle of this town while everyone else in the town is out at a basketball game, and they start to piece together that something weird is going on. Um, and, it, you know, you begin to learn it is something extraterrestrial. Um, like I said, it's a very low-budget movie. There is not a ton that happens in it. Uh, but I really liked this. It's framed like a Twilight Zone episode with, like, an introduction to that show. Occasionally, you'll just watch the the whole movie through a TV screen at certain points. Like there'll be actors in a TV show and then it'll cut back into the movie. Uh, the director on it, Andrew Patterson, I, I believe this is his first movie. He, he really has a great way of getting suspense out of just watching people answer the phone or listen to a radio. And it really works like this 90 minute kind of calling card for him to do whatever he can on this low budget. Like there's a tracking shot that I swear goes on the ground through the entire town at one point and, and like <laughs> through the town into the basketball arena, watches the people playing basketball loops back out into the radio station and it's showy and there's no point for it. But I'm like, wow, that's, that, that's a really well done shot. <laughs> um, it, it's a movie that I think works really well, would work really well as a short film. Um, probably something that would top out about 45 minutes stretched out to an hour and a half. It, you know, kind of plods near the end. It doesn't really end anywhere you'd expect, but it, it's a fascinating calling card for a director. I'd like to see more of. Um, and it, there's some really interesting stuff going on about who are the people who get listened to and who are the marginalized voices when things like this happen. So I, I recommend checking it out. It's on Amazon prime, a little slower, but uh, it's definitely definitely worth checking out for someone's first film. Cool. Um, but that, that gives us a nice seag into another sci-fi film, which is this week we are talking about 12 Monkeys, continuing our series of movies that came out in 1995. You can go back and listen to our previous episodes about Seven, about Mallrats, and about Smoke. Uh, and I was the one I picked 12 Monkeys, and I will be completely honest – I picked 12 Monkeys because I had not seen it in years, but I remembered being very taken with it when I saw it a few years ago. It's probably been about 10 years since I've seen it. Um, this, of course, stars Bruce Willis as James Cole, who is a prisoner in the future after it's been decimated by a virus. Uh, he is sent back in time to try and find the original source of this virus so he can come back to his time and help find the cure. Uh, he, at the at that point also meets a mental patient played by Brad Pitt and a psychiatrist played by Madeline Stowe. And it goes looping in and of it's out of itself. Um, yeah, I hadn't seen this in years, Perry. I'm assuming you saw this when it came out. 
Yeah, I remember seeing this in the theater, and I and honestly, I don't know if I've seen it since. I actually had it. I have a DVD of it that I took out of the shrink wrapping to watch this that I remember buying like in like a three dollar bin somewhere. Okay. Like I remember when it's just like, oh yeah, three bucks. Okay, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll get to this again at some point in my life. Uh, and this was the reason to do it. Uh, so yeah, that was um, it was it was that was it's a very interesting revisit. <laughs> for me, it was 20, 20 years later to uh, to remember vividly my reaction to it at the time and to have the exact same reaction to it. It was really interesting <laughs> um, while while forgetting large chunks of it. <laughs> yeah, I'll say I remember the ending to the movie um, and I remembered, you know, everything with Brad Pitt in the 1990 section. But I had totally forgotten that there are time jumps back and forth. Um, I totally forgot how weird that future world looks. Just this abrasive, I, I don't want to call it whimsical because it's not. It's this weird, clockworky, junky future world that really is something that comes. It's Terry Gilliam's aesthetic. Just yes. like it's this abrasive look that I can't even say I enjoyed looking at, but I was fascinated to look at it. Like everything is <laughs> rusted edges and people are wearing plastic. And at one point there's, you know, this chorus of doctors that sings to Bruce Willis. Um, I had forgotten how weird this movie was. And it, it's odd to sit here in 2020 and realize, Oh, this was a big studio movie. This was their big Christmas release at that time. Uh, it was a mainstream movie that made quite a bit of money. Um, and it's weird as hell. <laughs> G- Gilliam doesn't do small. No. <laughs> Gil- Gilliam can't do small. Um, what was your impression of it back then and now? Um, back then, I remember thinking, okay, so you've fused La Jetée and Vertigo. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of where I'm still at 25 years later. Um, and I will say this, we're just going to get this out of the way early. Oh my God. Wh- the world was so in love with Brad Pitt for him to get an Oscar nomination for this. That is a twitchy two dimensional performance. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. I, I had that down too. Like he, he would, he did get the supporting actor nomination for this one. Uh, and it is, it is a played to the back row performance where he is just over caffeinated and twitchy i and it's almost a proto tyler durden role like the character himself like you can see tyler his take on tyler durden starting to form if you take away a lot of the twitches but it's such a big performance um and, and it's funny because that got him the oscar nomination but this movie came out three months after seven which we've talked about and Seven is, to me, that's the performance that you look at that and you're like, oh, yeah, I see who Brad Pitt what could be. Like, that yeah. is the better performance. But this is the show era one, and, you know, it's you get nominated for the most a lot of times. It is showy, and it doesn't feel lived in. That's the thing. I mean, I, I understand it's a Gilliam film, so you are encouraged to play to the rafters. I'm sure he was given free reign. But it just it doesn't feel at all lived in, which actually Bruce Willis does throughout this like that's the weird thing it's like it's not that it's not that nobody's uh you know grounded Mm -hmm. some people really are and and Pitt is doing this other thing that i don't think he i don't think he was well serviced by gilliam (laughs) yeah (laughs) as a performer 
it's so big that it's distracting. Like when he's in the mental institution, I was, you know, I was like, okay, I see who the character is. But then when he comes back later, it's so over the top. And I think maybe because he's dressed, you know, a different way, he's in the tuxedo and everything, but he's still like just giving it 200%, but it doesn't fit. It feels cartoony. Um, Whereas Bruce Willis, yeah, he's, he goes big in some areas, but he's, He's very vulnerable in this. Like this, this is the period where Bruce Willis was trying, and you, you know, it, yeah, it was, it was the end, it was the end of that arc. Yes, yeah, because this would have been about the time Bruce Willis. Well, same year he did um, Die Hard with a Vengeance, which I think was like his biggest hit at that point. But it was the year after Pulp Fiction, and, and nobody's fool. Yeah, and he's starting to work with interesting actors or directors um, and hadn't figured out yet that he could just kind of sleepwalk through the thing. Um, and, and it's a really good performance. I really like Bruce Willis in this. There's There are sequences where he has this almost, like his character is almost this child in places. And the scene where he hears uh, Blueberry Hill come on the radio. Yes. I love that. Or just how much joy he has breathing in the air. Like, you don't see Bruce Willis do that anymore. So, yeah, there, there's the sequence where Bruce Willis is all kind of doped up. And I'm like, oh, that's what Bruce Willis did for the rest of his career was just <laughs> quiet and mumbly. But uh, I, I really like him in this. It's It, it was really that point where I, he was he was trying for something. He was working with interesting directors and... I, I had remembered this in my head as being a big action movie, which it's definitely not. And even when he ha- gets physical in sequences, he's kind of like this just like lug who's throwing himself at people out of like raw anger. Um, I, I really like Bruce Willis in this one. Um, yeah. I, yeah. It's, 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 yeah. <laughs> Agreed. It, it, it's bad. It's, you know, I've, is I sound defeated because uh, yes, I that Bruce Willis doesn't exist anymore. No, it does not, and it's it's not going to come back. I, I don't I don't see <laughs> I don't see him showing any interest in in, in flexing that muscle. <laughs> well, let's talk about what you talked about. Uh, you know, this is obviously based on La Jetée, and you know it's it's a loose interpretation of that. It's def- definitely a different plot with the same twist at the end. But there's also the not very heavy explicit nods to Vertigo. Um, yes, I, and this is my f- first time watching this movie, having seen both of those movies. So I, I've seen Vertigo by now. I, I, I saw La Jetée a few years ago for a class, and it was interesting to watch this film in light of those because probably what I thought was so original when I first saw Twelve Monkeys, now you're seeing exactly what Gilliam's doing, which is he's pulling from those. Yeah, he's not really pulling from La Jetée. This is La Jetée. Yes, yes. Just with more on it. Like it's, it's it's all La Jetée, and then with a bunch of Gilliam poured over top of it, <laughs> which for me in no way enhances La Jetée, which is a perfect twenty eight minutes. It's it's an outstanding movie. If you've never seen it, it's it's streaming on the Criterion Channel right now. There's a beautiful Criterion disc of it, uh, along paired with another Chris Marker film. Uh, and it's, it, it is this amazing 28 minute, incredibly French, uh, (laughs) incredibly philosophical look at memory. That's what the short is about. And that's what the movie could have been about. (laughs) It, it could have really been about the nature of memory and, and ideas of fate and destiny 
but instead, it you know it 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 wants to it wants to relish in in Gilliam World, which is a very unique and very distinct place, and a place that I don't mind visiting many many ways in many many places. <laughs> but um, watching it now, you know, I, I'm reminded of the complaint I've leveled against Tim Burton in so many ways. I'm like, you're not a visionary if you just put your aesthetic on somebody else's vision. <laughs> yes, I, I, um, I, I was, I, it was, I was disappointed at how, 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 how much I did not care for this a second time through. <laughs> not that I hate it. I don't think it's bad. It just feels remarkably unnecessary. And what put it in stark relief is thinking about it in those terms. This followed uh, the Fisher King. Yes. For Gilliam, you know, and I understand that there is a dearth of quality original screenplays in Hollywood and there always has been. That's why writers are really important. But, oh, my word, The Fisher King is I, I think it's fair to say it is Gilliam's most complete movie. Uh, it might not be as great as Brazil because it is not as wowy as Brazil, but it's an absolutely beautiful screenplay that his aesthetic really does help and does inform in really great ways. And you can't do better than having Jeff Bridges and Robin Williams <laughs> help you bring your vision to the screen. Uh, and it just, you know, in retrospect of that and, and in, in seeing how often directors in the last 30 years, you know, you know, get that tag of older oh, visionary directors, except they don't ever come with anything new. They just have a look. And they just keep applying it to source material. Granted, he's picked outstanding source material here. <laughs> and I, I'm fully willing to admit 99% of the world has not seen La Jetée. <laughs> but you can now. <laughs> and it's readily available. And it's only 28 minutes. It is only 28 minutes. And it is interesting because this film is like 12 Monkeys is so crammed with visual. Just like you know, Gilliam's subconscious throwing up in your face but you know and, and la jete is very famously it's a series of photographs and yet in 28 minutes that resonates more with me than this which i think is a really fun in places sci-fi movie i love the way this you know basically this loops around so that this is just a movie about a man going back and causing all the problems he went back to figure out. I, I kind of love that, how it's about bad perception and misinformation and especially watching it now, like this movie about a disease and someone trying to navigate this disease, but constantly misunderstanding what they're hearing from other people. It, it seemed very, like I made a comment on Letterboxd last night. I'm not sure if this was the best movie to watch right now or the worst, uh, but it was <laughs> it was definitely interesting to watch. Like you have, you know, the whole hook is he's, you know, Bruce Willis's character is coming back to find this whole, uh, you know, this army of the 12 monkeys that you find out he's basically put the, you know, put the focus on because he's come back looking for them, uh, which I, I think is a, you know, it's a circular thing that, doesn't do anything remarkable, but I, I think that's fun. But then I just watched La Jetée again last night, and that is a movie about a man fixated on a memory. Yeah. And it just it sticks with you more. It, 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 its use of images is so powerful. <laughs> there's that one shot where there's any movement at all, 
and it just anchors you to the whole emotional thrust of that movie. Yeah, the the great quote in La Jetée is, nothing tells memories from ordinary moments. Only afterwards do they claim remembrance on account of their scars. And that's that's what La Jetée is about. And, and, you know, the job of a director is to establish, you know, uh, uh, patterns. Uh, and so that when you break the pattern, the moment that breaks it has meaning and stays with you. I mean, that's why I love that that, you know, that that sentence can be the point of the movie, and yet it's a film director totally manipulating what you're going to remember and what's going to hit you. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it's part of the reason we love movies, right? It's it's someone telling you to have this memory, uh, and that's why that moment in La Jetée when when the woman's eyes open and she blinks is just startling. It's just it's so vivid because he has so rigorously kept to showing you just still photos still edited in ways that feel utterly new every time you don't get bored watching la jete it doesn't get visually stale by any means uh but and so you know even <laughs> as, as, as good as as good as gilliam is as an interesting image maker marker directed better <laughs> he accomplished more because 12 monkeys is really visually samey because we are stuck in this world that Gilliam loves to create and has no interest in leaving it. Well, I do think though the vertigo sequence, uh, the the moment where Madeline Stowe kind of walks out and it's that restaging of that scene in vertigo where she walks out of the uh, hotel bathroom. I, I, there's something Mm -hmm. I like about that moment because it ties into the movie, this whole idea of people just repeating things they've heard or seen like on a radio or in their memory they're repeating it and trying to give it some sort of meaning and i like the way that echoes with things that has have happened throughout the movie like you know he's just hearing people say something so he's taking it as reality or what he should do so but i don't know that that adds anything more to the movie i think it's just an interesting little flourish but I think it's an f- interesting movie to watch and, and a very fun movie sometimes. Like I, I do enjoy, well, I don't know if I would call it fun, but uh, it, you know, it's an interesting movie in many ways because I, I really like that Bruce Willis performance. I like the visuals just because they are so different from what I, you know, what we normally see. Uh, it's so hand created, uh, which now you wouldn't get, you'd get a whole CGI yes. future. Um, there's that sequence where Bruce Willis goes out into the city in the future and it's been overtaken by bears and lions. And I, I love that because it's practical. Everything is there in, you know, on a soundstage created instead of created in computers, it's tactile, but I don't know that it adds up to anything that resonates anymore. It is funny. I noticed that that yes, that stuff all looks great, and what looks really fake is the rear projection when they're in the car. Yeah, <laughs> the car scenes look so fake, <laughs> and not in a bad way, just in a movie way. But yes, the the lion on the building is absolutely real, <laughs> but we can't bother to actually film them in a car. Tells <laughs> you where Gilliam's interests are. <laughs> Now this, like you said, was after Fisher King. It was right before Fear and Loathing, and then I, after that, he kind of just. There is more... nothing to talk about in the 21st century with Terry Gilliam. <laughs> it's all really bad. It's all really not interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is another one like Mallrats, where I saw it in 1994. You know, I saw it after 95, but I saw it years ago and was like, 
oh yeah, this is interesting. And then I, you know, you revisit it, and this is not aged as poorly as Mallrats has with me, uh, because I do think it's it's a oh, it's so much better than Mallrats. Oh, yeah, I mean, yes, <laughs> but it, it's more interesting because of I, I think where everyone was at in their career at this point. So Brad Pitt is just kind of hitting you know movie star status, and Bruce Willis is trying to figure out what his movie star status is. Um, and Terry Gilliam is kind of navigating, you know, this more studio-driven... Well, not studio-driven, but he's a bigger name at that point. He can open a studio movie. Um, whereas in the, you know, the next five years, he would be a very independent director. I, I think it's fascinating yeah, where they're the at at that shot. point. Yes, he had the best chance to call his own shot at that point after Fisher King. And he chose this. <laughs> okay <laughs> obviously he couldn't find a script as good as, as the fisher king i i agree he probably couldn't i have no problem and to be fair i don't know who who to pin this on because this is a script by david webb peoples who wrote you know blade runner and, and unforgiven he's a, a truly great idiosyncratic screenwriter of blockbuster movies uh, and I don't know how much of this was with him. I don't know how much he wanted to fuse these two things together. I have a, the Vertigo stuff feels way more like uh, like Gilliam to yes. me. <laughs> Not that I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure once it was there, he was more than willing to run with Lajete as well. But uh, I, that had to have been there in the script. It couldn't not be. It is literally borrowing until the end. And let's talk about this for a second. This is really where Twelve Monkeys shows that it's not really it, it, it is not interested in what in what La Jete is interested in because there is that sequence you know the next to last sequence in La Jete is where he sees the future which does not happen in this movie he you know the, our protagonist in La Jete is given a chance to be accepted in the future and chooses to go back mm-hmm. to, to this this memory of this woman that he has been obsessed with his entire life that's so much more powerful and so much more meaningful <laughs> than, you know, the fact that they want to get to the Florida Keys so he can see the ocean. <laughs> I, I think what's interesting in, in the ending to this is that it's not a movie about saving humanity. And, and really, at the end of the movie, humanity's still pretty screwed because David Morris has already opened up the vial of the virus. There's nothing going to be changed. And I feel like that was the ending Gilliam was more interested in. I feel like I, I would have to assume the original script was pulling more from La Jete and was more interested, I would think, in though it's the themes that film brought up. But I do think Gilliam saw it and was like, oh, no, we can go really quirky with this and we can go really big. I, Yeah, it, it it's a weird fusing because it doesn't really deal with the themes of memory. It, it kind of talks about him a little bit but it's not it's not a big part of this movie the big part of this movie seems to be more you know kind of this this man who's doomed to kind of create his own problems or misinterpret what he hears the the whole arc with madeline stowe just doesn't ever fit as well whereas that's the driving point of la jete is that image of that woman he's more consumed in 12 monkeys yes. with the image of the death and I, I think that's what they're more drawn to is oh he sees himself die whereas that's just kind of the kicker to la jete 
Yes. Um, yes, agreed. There's no, there is no love story in Twelve Monkeys. No, it's a very. <laughs> there is a quote unquote love story, but uh, I, I don't know. I Madeline Stowe is not someone who's ever really connected with me in this, um, or in most other things I've seen her in. But uh, oh, I I, 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 I do think when she's when she's in this movie with Brad Pitt going as big as he is and Bruce Willis doing his thing. I, she just feels paper thin in this. And I, I, I don't buy her as a psychiatrist in, in this. Who <laughs> Most psychiatrists I know wouldn't drive off and fall immediately in love with the uh, crazy man who stalked them and kidnapped them. But. Yeah, she's she's I like her scenes late when she comes around on this. Uh, I, I actually I like her late in the movie a lot. Uh I, I it almost made me think. Oh well, there's an, there there's something new. There's something that Logitech doesn't have the time or interest in doing that you could explore, where you get someone else so wrapped up in your uh, in in your particular memories that they fall prey to it. That's interesting, but they don't really run with that. They could have done something more with that. That would have been a really interesting way to write the third act. Uh, but that's that's not that's not what Gilliam wants to do. Gilliam wants to Gilliam wants to just wrap it up because <laughs> he doesn't really have any deep thoughts on his mind. And to be fair, he usually doesn't. <laughs> Gilliam is not a deep thinker. He is a man. He is a stylist. And I, I do. I know I could say that and make it sound really nasty. And I don't. He really does. He, he really has a unique aesthetic that I, I really do enjoy the vast majority of the time it just this feels like just tacking it on late in the career and not knowing what to do next so he decided to do this it just it doesn't have the focus of the previous not just the fisher king but before that was baron munchausen which i adore i think it's great i think it's a fantastically entertaining movie and before that is brazil which is its own beast uh boy this yeah, this just feels like I, I I can do anything I want now, and there's nothing I want to do, so I'll do this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and going back to what you said about Madeline Stowe in that last part of the movie, definitely something I agree with. Um, when she kind of pieces together that Cole is telling the truth, and she learns, you know, that the the missing boy had been found in a barn, just like he had said, she gets giddy, like she gets excited almost to yeah. attach, and that is. That is more fun to watch because it's kind of like, wow, both these people are buying into this. And I don't know where that like, you know, she doesn't struggle with it almost. She just kind of flips a switch and she's in love with him. Right. Yes. And, you know, that's fascinating to watch because it's a more playful tone to the movie. Um, The first half of the movie, I just feel like she's the typical damsel in distress or. You know, the weird you know, sitting there being sniffed by Bruce Willis for the first half of the movie <laughs> is how she spends most of the movie. And it like it it's dull, um, whereas the last half of the movie, she's not dull. She she's interesting. Um, yeah. And I, I think visually this is this is probably the thing that kept me watching it and kept me intrigued is it is an aesthetic that is very abrasive. And I don't even know if I would say I like like it's not a movie I enjoy watching. Like I don't get pleasure out of watching Gilliam's vision of the future, but I'm fascinated <laughs> by it. I'm fascinated <laughs> because it's so weird and 
just I, I don't want to call it steampunky, but it's oh no, it is. It, it's absolutely it, oh, it's so bizarre, and I, I I loved to watch it, even if it was like hurting my eyes. Um, but then he goes just as big in the quote unquote modern day sequences. So when there are people on the street yelling at Cole or they go into that theater where the homeless people are living, it's played just as big, which kind of doesn't jive with the movie. Like the future is supposed to be this decrepit world where it's fallen apart. And I can see that being this big visually, uh, you know, visually overwhelming piece. But then when you go into what's supposed to be the more normal world, it feels just as big. And it just, it, when everything's that big, I, there's not a lot of tension. Yeah. It's, it's the disconnect for me of, you know, they're supposed to be underground mm-hmm. and in, in La Jete, Yeah. It feels like they're underground <laughs> and boy, there's a whole lot of big spaces in Gilliam's underground. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of very large rooms for some reason <laughs> in Gilliam's visioning of what is underground. <laughs> you just don't, I don't feel it like I do in La Jete. Yeah. La Jete is very effective. Um, I, I remember when I watched that in film theory, I had no idea what it was. And then you begin to discover it's this series of just pictures. And I, I at first I was like, what is this? I, I can't watch a whole movie like this. And then you just, the way that you sound in it, the way the pictures just seem to, they pick up the moments that would just be a blur, you know, in a, you know, in a normal movie that's kind of, you know, filmed. And it makes you focus just on that moment, that image, which is what the whole film is about is images and moments. Yeah. And it works because it's thematically all tied into the visuals, which 12 Monkeys isn't really thematically tied into any of those visuals no um but it's just i think it's also after a while when you have so many ideas that aren't thematically united it just falls apart i i think there's a lot they're trying to fit in here i don't think there's a lot they're trying to say yeah all i could think about when i watched the ending was like oh so really this is almost more carlito's way than la jete <laughs> that's what i thought of at the end again i'm like oh that really feels like what he's maybe ripping off here. And I couldn't remember Carlito's way came before or after this, but that's, that's what it put me in mind of. I'm like, Oh, it's a movie ending. It's not this incredible philosophical statement about what draws us to things all the time. Well, yeah, okay. it's just, it's, it's just so, and I, I understand it's unreasonable probably to hold what is absolutely a giant slice of Hollywood product up to, the artistic goals of what, you know, one of the great <laughs> French New Wave left bank filmmakers was trying to do with his little 28-minute art house thing. But when you ask for the comparisons so directly, I can't help but compare you. And you come up short. Well, and I think that's also, when you have 28 minutes, you can focus it down. You can, And that ending can hit the way you want it to hit because you're getting in there and focusing on one thing. And ev- those visuals... The story, the sounds are all tied to one theme that kind of kicks you at the ending. Mm-hmm. In 12 Monkeys, you start with that image. And first off, this movie tips its hand to that ending way too early. Like, you kind of know where this is going as the movie builds. 
but it when it by the time it hits it's not a it, it doesn't feel tragic it doesn't feel inevitable it doesn't feel like this is the outcome of these characters pursuing this answer and getting to this point it feels like oh we have that puzzle piece we have to put in right now and this is the this is the puzzle piece that that we're going to use to kind of shock you and it feels more like yeah. a like a twist instead of an organic outcome to the story yep um and Agreed. then they then they twist again with the uh you know the lady on the on the plane at the end to I, I don't even know what she's supposed to be doing because at that point there's nothing that can be done to stop what David Morse has done. So I don't know if she's just there to steal the virus or if it's just there to make us kind of chuckle, leave the movie going, whatever. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a movie that falls apart when you think about it for two seconds. Um, in the moment though, I, I enjoyed watching the performances and watching the visuals. Um, but I can also probably say I'll go up another 10 years before watching it again. And I have to ask, just from a sheer, you know, from a sheer efficient storytelling standpoint, why is the David Morse character there? I mean, honestly, why is it not Brad Pitt who's doing that? What is the point of Brad Pitt's character if he's not around for that finale? Like, <laughs> like it just feels like this incredibly extraneous thing where it's like even even somebody else realized – no, we really can't have Pitt there at the end. That's going to throw all the energy off. Get get a very good actor. Get David Morris over here to just play it nice and calm and a little crazy. I'm uh, yeah. <laughs> there. There is there is there are pieces there that I wanted. I needed more of the actual how they get the virus out because <laughs> it doesn't feel like anything's at stake. It feels like it feels like the MacGuffin. It feels like the thing that's the ticking clock, and that's all it is. And well, that's. That's it's just frustrating. <laughs> I feel like the better ending that that would tie into this whole idea that Cole is, you know, creating all his own problems would be that it is Brad Pitt's character at the airport because he's been spurred on by whatever thing Cole said to him in the mental institution. And it, it you know, it's caused him to go off and do that, which they make you think is what's happening. Which would be more effective if if Cole had actually caused the whole destruction that he went there to learn from or solve. But instead, it's this character who is in his own little parallel movie the whole time, who just happens to be there at the same time, isn't linked to you know Bruce Willis or Madeline Stowe's characters the entire movie, aside from one scene where he just shows up randomly at her speech. And yeah, it, it like it just feels like oh, he's there because we have to tie up the ending and and find some way to uh, wrap this up. But it, it just, it would feel more natural with Brad Pitt's character being the one to unleash that virus. Yeah. It would at least feel, it would be, it would be the film they want. It would be the Hollywood film that they want. As It's just, it's just a weird decision. And I love David Morse. <laughs> I'm happy Dave Morse is in the movie. <laughs> I'm happy he's there. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, it just it 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 just seemed like it's it's what you it's how you pad a 28 minute movie into 131 minutes. <laughs> I don't. It's it's just it's just more, and it dilutes it dilutes the absolute brilliance of the original. 
I will say I'm trying to look and see where Bruce Willis went after this. Um, I, obviously, I know he was around, but I'm trying to see like. Well, I, you still have six cents. Um, you have the six cents, and you, then you have Unbreakable, and that's really that's the end. That's that's the end of Bruce as, as a as a figure that we talk about or care about. <laughs> yeah. Aside from when he pops up in Wes Anderson movies every once in a while, I, I did like him in Moonrise Kingdom. Um, but yeah, yeah, like after that, he did. Uh, he was good in Motherless Brooklyn last year. I, 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 it's a it's a perfect role that was made for him, and it's it's he's very enjoyable in it. He did do Armageddon after this, so uh, you're welcome. <laughs> he. I will take 87 12 monkeys over Armageddon. So my apologies <laughs> for everything bad I said about 12 monkeys over the last 45 minutes. <laughs> Perry, do you have anything else to say about 12 monkeys? Uh, let's see. Let me look at my notes. Let's see what we're talking about. And the core. And then there's. No, no. I think we covered all of it. <laughs> all right. Um, I will say, I think in choosing movies from 1995, you have proven to have the better batting average than I have. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was happy to revisit 12 Monkeys. Truthfully, I'm, I mean, I'm glad to see it again. And it is interesting. You know, I, 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 I didn't have – I had the same feeling toward it but a different perspective. And that's what 25 years later will do to you. I will say watching it now, like with the, with the pandemic going on and everything just kind of feeling like, oh, this is what the end of the world feels like. You know, it's an interesting watch. Uh, <laughs> and it's an interesting watch because this isn't a movie – where the goal is to stop the virus from being released or to save humanity. Like this is a movie where kind of the destruction is assured. And I do like the thread. I wish they leaned more into it and spent more time with it of Bruce Willis's character coming back and learning, you know, humanity is screwed. This bad thing's going to happen, but I'm finding these moments to love. Like the see, the most powerful scenes are him listening to music or, taking a deep breath of air. And, and and I thought that was interesting, that there's this this bleak ending coming, this bleak destruction on the way, but here's a character who's learning to kind of find things to enjoy in the midst of it. And I don't know if that's just because we're in the uh, the middle of this of this time where we're finding things to enjoy, but I thought that was an interesting little sub-thread of the movie that they didn't do a ton with, but it's there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's it's a mistake even right off the top to make him a criminal. I'm like, that's that's not that has nothing to do with it. That's there just to create tension that you're not really interested in exploring. Like if he's we need to connect with him from the beginning for this film to play as powerfully as it should. Right. I mean, we've got to be we have to be coal. Yeah. We, and and so you need to make him as much of an everyman as possible. It's what Die Hard got right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's why Bruce Willis became a star. It's because he's able to do that. Or at least he was at that point. Uh, and it's just it, – it's such a – it's such a miscalculation to give him these – psychotic tendencies off the top it would be so much more effective if he could have every one of those moments and we can chalk it up to the sheer exhaustion of and and impracticality of time travel on the mind that would be so much more exhilarating it would be so much more frightening to watch him lose it as opposed to already being in a state of having lost it 
<laughs> when we're introduced to him at the beginning. It, well, I, it's a decision I never understood. There's, there's two. Now that you bring it up, there's two things that that stuck out to me. One is Lachete. I believe the the main character in that he's a political prisoner, not a not a criminal, correct? Because that had more to do with there was a war instead of a virus, things like that. And I don't know why that. If, if they needed him to be forced into this, I don't know why Bruce Willis's character wasn't just a political prisoner or. Someone who was held captive for some other reason. Because they never bring up, like, why he's a criminal or what he did. It's just there to keep us, to theoretically keep us off balance that maybe he's dangerous. And, oh, yeah, we're going to have this fake-out scene where we think we're going to make you think he killed Madeline Stowe's character. Even though you know he didn't kill Madeline Stowe's character because that's not how that would play out in a movie. Right, right. Um, But the other thing... I really feel like this would be a more effective and probably much different movie if you weren't told from the beginning, shown the future and told he is this traveler from the future and then had that verified. Like there's never any doubt that he's telling the truth at the beginning. You you are always meant to believe him. And I feel like there's a more interesting movie if he's doubting his sanity and we don't know what to believe. Yes. Like, like I feel that that would keep you more – There'd be more tension and he'd be a more, I I don't know, a character it's easier to follow along and be empathetic about. If he's confused and he's, you know, there is a thread where he's starting to believe he's, you know, he's mentally ill instead of a time traveler. And that's more and more effective if at the beginning of the movie they haven't shown us the truth. Yes. And that would be a much interesting movie. And that's a movie Terry Gilliam would never make because Terry Gilliam identifies with the crazies are the ones who are thought to be crazy. So he's he's going to make this very much about how sympathetic the seemingly crazy guy is supposed to be. Oh, and that's throughout <laughs> the movie. That's that's throughout the movie when you see the homeless people preaching or, you know, they're the voice of reasons, like the guy who, they, I don't quite get it, who's talking to Cole when he wakes up in the hospital, but he's also oh. a homeless man on the street, which I, I still can't figure it out, but it's this idea, you know, that, Yes, it's the, it's the exposition ghost. Yeah. Yes. The exposition ghost, but also there's this theme that, you know, the people who we would dismiss as crazy are the ones telling the truth, which is kind of more effective when – and it's been a while since I've seen The Fisher King, but that's a thread in The Fisher King, which is dealt with much better. <laughs> that that the truth is oh, found yeah. in the people who are kind of at the edge and and who we would often dismiss. Like, that's a more effective film for dealing with that. And I, I get it here. He's saying the rich and the powerful, those are the ones you got to watch out for. But that's every movie ever made is telling you that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think I've exhausted everything that I had to say on 12 Monkeys. And what's funny is I felt more positive about it going into this conversation. It's kind of fun when you can. <laughs> It's kind of fun when you can sit in with a movie where you, you feel you're leaning one way, and then the more you pull at the thread, you get that clearer picture on it. Yeah, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that was fun. <laughs> Good. Um, I, I'm really excited. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm really excited because the last movie we're going to do in this series is one that you've picked and one I have not seen but have been meaning to catch up with for a long time. And Perry, do you want to tell everyone what it is? We are going to do Martin Scorsese's 1995 three hour epic casino. I am really excited about that because 
that has been one I've just always it's been on the I'll get around to it list. Um, and, and it's funny because I remember one of the first conversations I had when I was dating my wife, we were talking about movies and um, she was talking about one she had seen before. And she just couldn't believe anyone liked it because it was so violent and uh, and, <laughs> and harsh. And it was Casino. And uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I kind of figured out, I'm like, oh, maybe we won't watch Goodfellas on the next date or anything like that. But uh, <laughs> I've, I'm looking forward to seeing this one because I have not seen it. And it, honestly, it's, it's about time we talk about Scorsese on this podcast, you know? Well, you know, we, have, we've, I think we've gone two episodes without it. It's time to get it back home, boys and girls. Let's bring it around. Let's get back to it. Let's get on task. I am really looking forward to checking out this one. We will talk about that in a few weeks. In the meantime, Perry, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Perry Loves Film. You can find me on Facebook. You can hear me every Friday morning on the Lucy and Lance Show, WLBY, 1290 AM, Ann Arbor, uh, talking about movie news and new releases and whatnot. And, yeah, you can you can always find me at home with my eyes propped open by my fingers like an at-home Ludovico technique, just staring at the screen. <laughs> You can find me at uh, BHM Pop Culture, where I write about movies. Uh, my Spielberg series is continuing, and I'm really excited about it because I'm about to finally dip into that uh, 80s era of Spielberg, where I haven't seen a whole stretch of his films, and I've been told for some of that, that's a good thing. Um, so I'm about, to watch, I'm about to watch The Colored Purple and Empire of the Sun for the first time, but I also know Always, oh. I know always is also sneaking it, in there, too. Empire of the Sun's great. I have heard that. Empire of the um, Sun is great. And, always uh, is a slaw. <laughs> always is awful. Always might be his worst movie. Really? really? Yeah. Always is bad. <laughs> Oh my God, is it bad? <laughs> I, I'm oddly looking forward to watching it uh, for that. Um, yeah, it's it's been kind of weird to to go back. It, it's been fun to go back and watch, you know, Close Encounters and E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark. But now to kind of actually see there's this whole chunk of his career that I, I still have a blind spot in. I'm, I'm excited about that. And uh, so uh, Color Purple will be up next for me. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at Mere Christianity. You can listen to my other podcast, Cross Culture Critic. And if you need to find where all these are, just find me on Facebook and uh, everything is linked there. We will see you in a few weeks.